Good morning, and uh, welcome to Lake Street. It's so good for us to be gathered together here as brothers and sisters in Christ, gathered together to study and to, to worship and to praise our great God. And what a great God it is that we have. We have been talking about the book of Hosea for quite some time. We're going to continue that study this morning there. But in that study, we have seen a God that loves his people, loves the people that were unfaithful to him, loves the people that turned away from him. And, and just an amazing God is portrayed, is depicted and, and painted for us in the words of the prophet of Hosea. So far in our study, we've seen chapter one talk about the analogy of Hosea and Gomer. Uh, a man who had taken a, a woman for his wife and a woman who turned to adultery. And the rejection that is symbolized in the children of Hosea and Gomer. We also saw in chapter 1 that there would be a restoration for Israel. Even though they were like, likened unto Hosea and Gomer, likened unto this, relation, this adulterous relationship, there would be a time of restoration. And in that we just see so much love of the Father. Chapter 2 went on to describe the unfaithfulness and again depicted it as a, a wife guilty of harlotry. And then yet again, a restoration is described of uh, being finally cured of idolatry, the sin that, that Israel had, had made them, that had made them adulterous. And then uh, in, in chapter 3, we see a restoration symbolized, depicting a harlot, harlot being taken back to, her, to uh, the husband as a wife. It is just such a beautiful image that's being painted in, in a very dark time in Israel's past and, and a dark time in any sort of, in any sort of relationship and marriage, and yet a, a love is shown here that is so beautiful. Chapter 4 goes on to talk about God's indictment of Israel and, and calling them on their sin. And Hosea, uh, as he brings this to them, we see the children of Israel saying, it's going to be okay because he's, he's our God. And they make an appeal to him that he will do what he has always done. He will forgive us. And yet that appeal is rejected. That appeal is, is turned down. But yet we still see a theme being interwoven into this, real, into this story of the redemptive love, the redeeming love of the Father. The love God has for Israel, though, doesn't preclude a need for punishment. If we remember over in chapter 2, in verse 13... Chapter 2 and verse 13. Chapter 2 and verse 13 says, I will punish her for the days of the Baals when she used to offer sacrifices to them and adorn herself with her earrings and jewelry and follow her lovers so that she forgot me, declares the Lord. There is a punishment that is coming on Israel. There is a punishment that, that is going to be because of the adultery that they have committed against the Lord. They're unfaithless to them. And it's going to be in the form of an Assyrian invasion and an Assyrian captivity. And that's what the section that we are going to look at this morning is going to, is going to, to, to show us. We're going to be reading chapters 8 through 10 of Hosea. And in this lesson, we're going to notice that God is going to give them a warning of the punishment that is coming and is about to befall them because of their sin. All of these chapters here are rather short chapters. We're going to read through them one at a time, uh, starting in chapter 8. It says in verse 1, Put the trumpet to your lips. Like an eagle, the enemy comes against the house of the Lord, because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. 
They cry out to me, My God, we of Israel know you. Israel has rejected the good. The enemy will pursue him. They have set up kings, but not by me. They have appointed princes, but I did not know it. With their silver and gold, they have made idols for themselves that they might be cut off. He has rejected your calf, O Samaria, saying, My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For far from Israel is even this. A craftsman made it, so it is not God. Surely the calf of Samaria will be broken to pieces, for they sow the wind and they reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads, it yields no grain, because it yields stranger, or should it yield, strangers would swallow it up. Israel is swallowed up. They are now among the nations like a vessel in which no one delights. For they have gone up to Assyria like a wild donkey all alone. Ephraim has hired lovers. And even though they hire allies among the nations, now I will gather them up. And they will begin to diminish because the burden of the king of princes. Since Ephraim has multiplied altars for sin, they have become altars of sinning for him. Though I wrote for him 10,000 precepts of my law, they are regarded as a strange thing. And as for my sacrificial gifts, they sacrifice the flesh and eat it, but the Lord has taken no delight in them. Now he will, re- he will remember their iniquity and punish them for their sins. They will return to Egypt, for Israel has forgotten his maker and bit- built palaces, and Judah has multiplied fortified cities. But I will send a fire on its cities that may consume its palatial dwellings. So in the first 14 verses of chapter 8, we're reading of God's punishment for Israel and a warning of an approaching judgment. Judgment is coming because they have transgressed the covenant, as verses 1 through 6 tell us. They had not kept their vows that they had made with the Lord. And again, we see a, a similar view to marriage and the relationship between a husband and wife. When one spouse doesn't keep their vows, there is unfaithfulness. And so because they had not kept their vows, they had been unfaithful to God, there is a coming judgment. They had sown the wind, as it says in verse 7 and 10. They had sown the wind through their alliances with Assyria. They had turned to the world for for help in in a time where they had need. They had turned to the gods of the world, to the kings of the world, and now they were going to reap the whirlwind. And God here is really telling Israel, You put yourself in this situation. You did this to yourself. I did not cause these things to come upon you for no reason. These things are coming upon you because you have been unfaithful to me. You know, it reminds me of a time when I was was younger. I I, I was around Ryder's age, maybe a little bit younger. Um, and, And we were in mom's car and she had a curling iron in the car, plugged into the cigarette lighter and and heating up. I don't know why she had a curling iron in the car, but I do remember that I had a desire to grab that curling iron. It was so bad. And she had told me, don't touch that curling iron. Leave it alone. And I kept just trying to get it and trying to get a hold of it. And finally she said, you know what? Grab it. You want it? Go ahead and pick it up. And I grabbed it and it burned me and it hurt. And then she consoled me. But I I learned a lesson. I caused that to happen. It wasn't because mom said, grab it, that I got burnt. It was because I wanted it, and so I got what I wanted. The Israelites wanted Assyria's help in these times. They wanted the gods of the Assyrians. They wanted these things, and God said, this is what you have sown. This is what you're going to reap. The altars of their religion, as it says, verses 11 through 13, had made them sin, and their punishment would be a return to Egypt. Egypt here is seen as a symbol of captivity. They were a free people. 
but they were no longer going to be free. They were no longer going to be their own nation. They had wanted help from the kings of Assyria to help them in this conflict that they had, but they were no longer going to just be the children of Israel. They were not going to be a nation of Israel. They were going to be a part of the Assyrian nation and not a part as in uh, similar members. They were going to be slaves. They were going to be captives of the Assyrian nation. And then verse 14, one of the most, one of the most powerful verses in chapter 8, a verse that really strikes to the heart of the issue. It says that they had forgotten. They had forgotten that God was their maker. And even Judah places more trust in the fortified cities. They had forgotten. They had forgotten not only that God created them, that God created everything they see, created the mountains and the land and the sea, created them as a, as a, as a people and built them from dust. They had forgotten that God was the one that brought them out of Egypt and made them a nation and brought them through the wilderness and placed them into Canaan, conquered all the cities. God had brought them to where they were. He had built them as a nation and as a people. And yet they had forgotten who it was that had done all these things. And so, again, they turned to others. And chapter 9 continues on with the same vein of thought. Verse 1 says, Do not rejoice, O Israel, with exultation like the nations. For you have played the harlot, forsaking your God. You have loved harlots' earnings on every threshing floor. Threshing floor and wine press will not feed them, and the new wine will fail them. They will not remain in the Lord's land, but Ephraim will return to Egypt. And in Assyria they will eat unclean food. They will not pour out drink offerings of wine to the Lord. Their sacrifices will not please Him. Their bread will be like mourner's bread. All who eat it will be defiled, for their bread will be, themselves al- will be for themselves alone. It will not enter the house of the Lord. What will you do on the day of the appointed festival and on the day of the feast of the Lord? For behold, they will go because, for behold, they will go because of destruction. Egypt will gather them up. Memphis will bury them. Weeds will take over their treasures of silver. Thorns will be in their tents. The days of punishment have come. The days of retribution have come. Let Israel know this. The prophet is a fool. The inspired man is demented. Because of the grossness of your iniquity and because, of your hosti- and because your hostility is so great. Ephraim was a watchman with my God, a prophet. Yet the snare of a bird catcher is in all his ways. And there is only, one, and there is only hostility in the house of his God. They have gone deep in depravity, as in the days of Gibeah. And he will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your forefathers as the earliest fruit on the fig tree in its first season. But they came to Baal Peor and devoted themselves to shame. And they became as detestable as that which they loved. As for Ephraim, their glory will fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. And though they bring up their children, though they bring up their children, yet I will bereave them until not a man is left. Yes, woe is to them, woe to them indeed when I depart from them. Ephraim, as I have seen, is planted in a pleasant meadow like Tyre. But Ephraim will bring out his children for slaughter. Give them, O Lord, what will you give? Give them a miscarrying womb and a dry breasts. All their evil is at Gilgal. Indeed, I came to hate them there because of the wickedness of their deeds. I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebels. Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They will bear no fruit. Even though they bear children, I will slay the precious ones of their womb. My God will cast them away because they have not listened to him, and they will be wanderers among the nations. 
So in chapter 9, Hosea, bringing God's message again to the children of Israel, retells the, for, uh, the captivity that is foretold for Israel. And again, the focus is, is placed right off the bat off of their unfaithfulness. Israel has, been, has played the harlot. And Ephraim, again talking about Israel, Ephraim shall return to Egypt. But here, as Egypt is used as a type of captivity, Assyria is finally mentioned by name. And they are told, when you, when you go into Assyrian, again, you, will, you, you look to them for strength, they will be your downfall. And you will not be free people. You will not be able to celebrate your feasts. You will not be able to, to do the things that you once did. And, and you are going to be punished. This is not some time where you are going to just kind of meld into another civilization. You are going to be punished for the things that you have done. And then he says in chapter 10, or in verse 10 through 17, he says, remember, I remember the things that you once did. But the fleeting glory of Israel is just that. It is fleeting. You followed Moses out of Egypt. You put faith in me and you followed Moses out of Egypt into the wilderness. And then you followed Joshua into Canaan. And you looked to me for your strength. And we together went into Canaan and you, you overcame. But you can't rest on that. You can't rest on the things that you did in the past. In fact, the things that you did in the past now have no significance. Because though I considered the first fruits, I considered the things that you had done, now you have given yourselves over to idolatry. And so it says your glory will fly away. You'll be like one that is childless. And because of their wickedness, God was going to cast them out. And then chapter 10, he reiterates all that he has said, saying Israel is a luxuriant vine. He produces fruit for himself. The more his fruit, the more altars he made. The richer his land, the better he made the sacred pillars. Their heart is faithless. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their sacred pillars. Surely, no, uh, surely now they will say, we have no king, for we do not revere the Lord. As for the king, what can he do for us? They speak mere words. With worthless oaths they make covenants. And judgment sprouts like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. The inhabitants of Samaria will fear for the calf of beth -Avon. Indeed, its people will mourn for it, and its idolatrous priests will cry out over it. Over its glory, since it has departed from it, the thing itself will be carried to Assyria as tribute to King Jerob. Ephraim will be seized with shame, and Israel will be ashamed of its own counsel. Samaria will be cut off with her king, like a stick on the surface of the water. Also the high places of Avon, the sin of Israel, will be destroyed. Thorn and thistle will grow on their altars. And then they will say to the mountains, Cover us, and to the hills fall on us. From the days of Gibeah you have sinned, O Israel. There they stand. Will not the battle against the sons of iniquity overtake them in Gibeah? When it is my desire, I will chastise them. And the peoples will be gathered against them when they are bound for their double guilt. Ephraim is a trained heifer that loves to thresh, but I will come over her fair neck with a yoke. I will harness Ephraim. Judah will plow. Jacob will harrow for himself. Sow with a view to righteousness. Reap in accordance with kindness. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord until He comes to rain righteousness on you. You have plowed wickedness. You have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies because you have trusted in your way and your numerous warriors. And therefore a tumult will arise among your people. And all your fortresses will be destroyed as Shalman destroyed Beth Arabel in the days of battle. When mothers were dashed in pieces with their children, thus it will be done to you at Bethel because of your great wickedness. At dawn, the king of Israel will be completely cut off. And so again, 
chapter 10, is, is reiterating all that has been said up to this point. Israel is guilty and there's a coming captivity. Israel has sinned and there's a coming punishment. And with such ample warning through the prophets like Hosea, God let Israel know this is what's about to happen. And this is why it's about to happen. These are the things that are coming. But the prophet's message didn't end there. We see a message of hope concerning a restoration is also going to be proclaimed throughout the remainder of the book. And we're going to consider that more later. But for the rest of the time, there's a few things I want us to notice. The first thing is that God's wrath and God's anger are very real and are very important. So many times we tend to look to the God of the Bible and say He is a God of love. And He is a God of love. But He is also a God of, of, that is jealous. He is a God that is wrathful. And He is a God that is vengeful. And He expects his people to be obedient and faithful to him. And as, the, as Hosea points out, by telling Israel of their sin and of the punishment, it is our responsibility as, as watchmen, it is our responsibility as people to not sugarcoat that fact that God is a wrathful God. And it is important for us to consider that whenever we look at our own lives and whenever we interact with those around us. But there are some very important passages as well, some very key verses that teach us very, very bold lessons. I want to look at just a few of those this morning. The first one is the chapter, Hosea chapter 8 and verse 12. New King James records it as this, I have written for him the great things of my law, but they were considered a strange thing. This is such a sad, sad commentary on the people of Israel and on where they had come uh, in their relationship with God and with His Word. If we turn over to Psalm chapter 19, verses 7 through 11, we oftentimes sing a song related to, from these words. We see that God had done a wondrous thing by giving them His Word. Psalm 19, verse 7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold. Yes, the much fine gold, sweeter also than honey. And the drippings of the honeycomb, moreover by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. We see how amazing and how beautiful and valuable it was of God to give His Word to the children of Israel. It wasn't just some antiquated text. It wasn't just some series of, of, of commandments that morally should or should not be followed. It was an awesome treasure. It was something very valuable and, and, and very good for them to have. But they had become perverted. They had become hard of heart. They had been unfaithful and turned away from the God that had given them such wonderful commands and such beautiful words to that which had no value, to that which was hewn from rock and whittled from stick. And so all these things seemed strange to them. Cannot the same thing be said today? We have been richly blessed by the full revelation 
of God's will through His Son, Jesus Christ. We think, and we've talked some in our, in our study on Hebrews about the picture that they had versus the picture that we have. Having the full and completed message. And we have it in such an abundance. Not in, in scrolls that can't be taken home, but in, in, in written format, in books that we can have at our house, in, on, on our phones that we can have in our pockets. We have an unending supply, especially as, as, as citizens of this nation, to God's Word, the full Word, the full revelation. But for many, for many, we can be unaware of what it actually says. We can be caught up in the thinking of the world. So many base their decisions and, and their thoughts and the way they act not off of what God's Word says, but off what man says, off what the, the media says. Whatever, whatever is on the news today, whatever is, is the important thing for them, that's going to be my view. Whatever my friends say on, on social media or in, in our social circles, that's going to be my view. Whatever, and, and to steal from Richard, whatever, whatever Pastor Bob says, that's going to be my view. Whatever the expert in the field says, that's going to be my view. Or my family. Whatever, is, whatever my dad or my, my mom, my grandparents, whatever they have held to, that's going to be my view. But what does the Bible say? That should be our view. We can't be described as one that considers a strange thing the principles and the truths that are found in God's Word. The next verse that is uh, that, that I want to highlight from this passage is Hosea chapter 10, verse 12. Where it says, Sow for yourself righteousness, reap in mercy. We cannot earn our salvation by good works. I understand that. I believe we all do. That the works of righteousness don't result in being saved. In fact, there was nothing that could save us other than that precious blood of Christ and the grace and the mercy that was bestowed upon us through His sacrifice. But works of righteousness can result in experiencing God's grace and mercy. And a case in point for this can be seen over in Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, we read of the account of Cornelius. And we read some very interesting things about Cornelius in the first six verses. It says in verse 1, Now there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort, a devout man, and one who feared God with all his household, and gave many alms to the Jewish people, and prayed to God continuously. About the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius. And fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, he said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. He is staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. As we continue on in this story, we, we know that Peter comes to him and brings the gospel message to him. But the point is, his fear of God, his prayers to God, his alms to, to the Jewish people, these things did not save Cornelius. But God did see them. God took notice of them. 
And so by striving to serve and to please God, Cornelius came to know the way of mercy and salvation. No, works do not save. But consider this. When our children want to please us, they will oftentimes do things that we find pleasing. Not too long ago, Ryder made me and Holly breakfast in bed. Sometimes Easton and Madden come to us and say, look, we went and we cleaned our rooms. They will make a, a, a get well card or, or, or a, a birthday card or do things for other people. Why? Not because I'm going to get up here and, and say it in front of all of you all. Although I'm sure that's a, a bonus for them. It's because they love those people. They love us and the people that they write these cards for, the people that they do these things for, just like all of our children have done. They love them and they want them to see it. They don't do it for appreciation from other people. They don't do it for, for just to feel good about themselves. They do it because they want us to see it and to be proud of them. Cornelius served God and feared him, not because he wanted the rest of the Italian cohort to say, look at that Cornelius, he's something special. Because he wanted God to see it, and God did see it. That should make us more diligent in our service. Not that we do things to earn our salvation, and not that we do things to be seen by men, and not that we do things so that we will just have some form of self-gratification. We serve God to be seen by him. And to receive His grace and His mercy. Another example of this can be seen over in 2 Timothy. <clears throat> 2 Timothy chapter 1. At the end of the chapter, we read about one named Onesiphorus. It says, starting in verse 15, You are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus. Yeah. For he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. The Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you know very well the services he rendered at Ephesus. Again, we have another example of one who served God. And because of that, because of that, he was seen by God. And he was able to see mercy and salvation. There is very big importance is placed throughout Scripture on, on the, the works that we are sowing, the seed that we are sowing in our lives. But just the opposite of that is what's seen in verse 13. You have plowed wickedness and you have reaped iniquity. Iniquity, or as the New American Standard says, injustice is the natural consequence of wickedness. And when people turn their ears away from hearing the Word of God, they will be wicked. You know, sometimes we, we take that word wicked and, and we attribute it to, to our own sort of bar so that we can set it wherever we want to and feel better about ourselves. Maybe we, we set it up somewhere real high so we know we don't have to be, uh, have any fear of becoming wicked. And so we'll apply it to a person like Hitler. We're going to apply it to him because I'm never going to be some sort of uh, crazy, murdering, egotistical you know, any word that we can apply to, to this dictator, uh, to, to this ruler of a nation that killed so many people and that held such a, a twisted view of human life. I am never going to be that bad. So that 
that is my standard. That, that is wicked. And it is wicked. But that's not where the bar is at. So maybe we think, well, we're going to do something that, that possibly could be a little bit closer to home. We're going to put that bar somewhere a little bit lower. Maybe we'll look at, at someone like Bill Clinton, someone who was unfaithful to their spouse, someone who told lies. These sorts of things are, are probably more uh, of a temptation and more of a problem than murdering millions of people. Yeah, that, if, I, if, I, if I reach that level, then I'm wicked. And I would have to again say, yeah, you are, but that's not the measure of wickedness. The measure of wickedness is when people turn their ears and their hearts away from God. Even down here on a low level with what man says are little tiny sins, are little tiny problems. When we are turning our hearts and our minds away from God, we will be wicked. And the consequence of that is injustice and lawlessness. And sadly, I, I believe we can see in our nation, in our society, a reaping of injustice and lawlessness today, and it is because of wickedness. But you know what? That is effective from the top down. Yes, in our nation, we can see. We can see a society of people who murder babies and raise up the parents of those babies uh, uh, saying they are courageous while they stand in their blood. We see a group of people who say, I, I was born one way, but I've decided I want to be something else. And again, we raise up that decision to be courageous and good when it is immoral and is wicked. And then we ask ourselves, why is there so much hate? And why is there, there there's so much lawlessness going on in our country? God tells us, when you reap wickedness, you sow lawlessness, you sow iniquity. But it doesn't stop at the societal level. Again, it comes all the way down to our homes, to our families. When the husband is not leading his wife, there will be lawlessness in the family. When the wife is not submissive to her husband, there will be lawlessness in the family. When the children are not raised and are not, are not parented, and when the children are disrespectful to the parents, there will be lawlessness because that is wickedness. And God views these things as unfaithful. He views this, uh, this as sin. And he views sin very seriously. More than a quarter of the book of Hosea is devoted to nothing but God's anger and wrath about sin. And the message of Hosea was first spoken to a people of an earlier time. That message still speaks to us today. Why? Because as, as every history teacher has ever told me, history repeats itself. And people make the same mistakes over and over again. But the people of God, we don't have to. We don't have to repeat the mistakes that the children of Israel made. Instead of learning by experience, we can learn from their, from their mistakes. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 6 says, Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. So we can learn from their example that the people of God are not immune to apostasy, to rejection of God. 
They are not immune to wickedness and to sin. And they're not reviewed, uh, immune to rebellion. Now, sometimes I don't really think we, we give enough consideration to that word rebellion. Because oftentimes a rebellion happens within the country, within even a, 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 a kingdom. A certain group of people will rebel against the king, and they don't necessarily want to reject and leave, but they want to change things to match what they think is right. We are very guilty of that sometimes, of rebelling against God. And we haven't quite rejected him yet, but we are kicking against his authority. The message to, that Hosea gave to the Israelites is a message to us as well. God's intent in preserving the Old Testament is that we might benefit from the mistakes that may, they made. And the works of the prophets like Hosea can certainly help. And while the words, while his words uh, may have been written to another people, they must be well known to us. Or will they be something considered strange? I hope that this study uh, will help his words become more familiar to us. Some of the other words that we might, we might desire to be familiar with us are the words that he writ to tell us how much he loves us and to the great extents that he's went to redeem us back. Not as, as, as a people that were worthy of it, just like the children of Israel were not worthy of having that restoration, but as a people that he created and a people that he loves. If you today have, have not received the salvation that comes only through obedience to Him, that comes through confessing that we believe that He is the Son of God, that comes through, through repenting of the sins and the wickedness that has been in our lives. And again, that bar is not very high. That bar is down low. Anytime that we are not following His Word, we are living in wickedness. We are living in sin. If we have not been buried with Him in baptism, to have those sins washed away, then we will be punished. There is wrath coming from a wrathful God. And there will be no salvation, not from the kingdoms of the world, not from our friends, not from our family. There will be nothing to protect us except for the redemption that He offers through His Son. This morning, if you have not taken advantage of that, I would ask you this question. I would ask you why. Why do you wait? There is nothing but hope and blessings that come through that. If there is some way we can help you in, in taking that step and in walking each and every day following in that step and in those footprints of our Lord, then I encourage you, please let it be known. If there's something we can do to assist you this morning, come forward right now as we stand and as we sing.